Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Of all the dangers posed by nature, earthquakes have the highest ratio of peril to predictability. Now, some research on slow, gentle quakes is giving insight into the biggest kind, and it's hoped forming the basis for an early warning system. And hammams, the traditional bathhouses across the Arab world, have long been in decline. But even against the challenge of COVID, they've survived, because there's still a place for rites and rituals, and still a place to get a bracingly vigorous scrub-up. First up, though. Today, America marks Martin Luther King Day to commemorate the civil rights leader and his fight for, among many other rights, equality at the ballot box. It was also meant to be the deadline for a Senate vote on legislation designed by Democrats to protect voting rights. A package of two bills in Congress has become a central focus for the party, from its activists to its very leaders. Across the country, it's voter suppression, GOP gerrymandering of our districts, right-wing court packing and judicial activism to destroy the Voting Rights Act in cases like Shelby County... In the United States of America, we need federal laws that guarantee the freedom and right of every American to have access to the ballot, to be able to vote. The voter suppression epidemic that has been unleashed by the radical right is unacceptable, unreasonable, unfathomable, unconscionable, and un-American. The whole matrix of GOP democracy suppression today, it's time to protect the right to vote here on Earth. They point to Republican state legislatures tightening rules on voting by post, on early voting, on photo ID requirements. The legislation will make it to the Senate floor this week, but it doesn't have much chance of passing. And it might be aimed at the lesser of the dangers to America's electoral system. While Democrats pick at the rules for voting, Republicans have been focusing their efforts on who does the counting and the certifying of those votes. Why aren't they investigating November 3rd, a rigged and stolen election without getting to the bottom of... Ever since Donald Trump left office in shame and convinced most Republicans that the past election was stolen, they've been very committed to changing voting rules to prevent what they say is another stolen election. Idris Kaloun is our Washington correspondent. To Democrats now, this political debate is one of existential consequence. They say that Republicans are aiming to construct a new Jim Crow that will aim to suppress the votes of minority voters in America permanently. President Joe Biden flew to Georgia 
he delivered a strident speech arguing that Republicans are returning to the dark days of the pre-civil rights era and Democrats in the Senate who could do something about it need to be on his side in order to fight this. Do you want to be the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. And so what are the proposed legislative solutions to all this? So Democrats have recently renewed their push for the combination of two bills that have been previously proposed. One is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which aims to reinstitute preclearance, which was this procedure in which states and localities that had a history of discriminatory voting practices had to get clearance with the Federal Department of Justice before making any changes to their voting laws. That was struck down by the Supreme Court in a decision in 2013. The second is the Freedom to Vote Act, which establishes some minimum criteria for federal elections, like the number of early days, under what conditions uh, voter ID ballot has to be accepted, etc. But also focuses quite a lot on other matters, such as ending partisan gerrymandering and campaign finance reform. Whatever you think of the legislative solution, they were effectively dead on arrival. There was never a clear path for this to get through the Senate, in part because voting rights legislation cannot surmount the filibuster, which means that 60 votes in the Senate would have been needed to pass it. Those were never apparent as to where they would come. And nor was there going to be unanimous Democratic support to rewrite the rules on the filibuster to allow this to go forward. Last week, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona made a floor speech in which she said that quite definitively. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. This was a lot of expenditure of political capital on something that ultimately really wasn't ever going to go anywhere. And besides that, they did also kind of miss the big problems that American elections are facing now. What do you mean? How, how are these not the problems that the, the American voting system faces? Well, there is no reason to trust the Republican motives as they mess with election rules. They wouldn't be pursuing those things that they didn't think it was to their advantage. But it's also true that this has been going on for several years now, and there is little evidence as yet that any of this alleged voter suppression actually materially affects elections. So a precise look delivered by two economists examining all voter ID laws enacted over a decade, uh, from 2008 through 2018, found that there was no negative effect on registration or turnout for any group defined by race, gender, age, or party affiliation. That being said, the, the Democratic leadership is very amped up about this issue. The base is fearful that Republicans are conspiring to steal an election. And I think that Donald Trump would have no qualms about doing that but it's not going to be through these more banal mechanisms of changing postal voting and whatnot. It's going to be through simply not acknowledging an electoral defeat, as indeed he did. So essentially everything that you think is a real risk is not nothing like what's in this legislation. There is a real threat to American elections. It's just not so much voter suppression as it is out-and-out election interference. The Republican Party is now completely aligned around President Trump's idea that the previous election was stolen. Legions of his followers are now running to be chief elections officers, to be minor elections officials, to basically politicize and make partisan what was previously a fairly boring and technocratic part of American life. And the amount of disruption that can be 
done from refusing to certify an election in which a Democrat would win, I think is much greater than the potential risks of voter suppression. And you, you see this. I mean, Trump is not really disguising what he's saying. Fairly recently, he he gave an endorsement in the race to be the election supervisor in Pennsylvania, which is a swing state. And he basically said the quiet part out loud. And so we have to be a lot sharper the next time when it comes to counting the vote. There's a famous statement, sometimes the vote counter is more important than the candidate, and we can't let that ever, ever... So then why go to all the trouble of pushing the the voting rights package that's set for this week, especially if, as you say, that's not actually the biggest problem that the voting system faces? President Biden has gotten a lot of flack from activists on his left who think that he has spent too much time pursuing his Build Back Better agenda, and he's ignored the promises that he made during the campaign to reinstitute some of these greater protections and loudly campaigning for them might have some hope of energizing what might be a fairly dejected party base. But I think in the end, it highlighted his own political weakness and inability to command his own party to actually get the things done that he promised he would. And stepping back a bit, where does this leave things with American democracy much more more broadly? You, we have a real threat to, to the voting system. We have some legislation that, from the sound of it, is, is really going nowhere. Where does that leave us? I don't think it leaves us in a good place. I worry that these threats are now emerging to some degree from both sides of the aisle. With Republicans, I think the issue is much more severe. But it is also corrosive to democracy to convince masses of people that the other side is aiming to suppress votes and return to the days of Jim Crow and win elections in that way, particularly if it's not necessarily a true sentiment. Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican who was no friend to Donald Trump, said this explicitly in a speech he delivered on the Senate floor. And so President Biden goes down the same tragic road taken by President Trump, casting doubt on the reliability of American elections. This is a sad, sad day. I I think America's in a very unstable equilibrium. Every political scientist who studied the decline of democracy in countries across the world has said that once you lose the consent of losers in elections, you're on a very fast and and very scary, slippery slope. So at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit worried. Idris, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
they can alert people hours before some volcanic eruptions. And as happened this weekend, following an eruption in Tonga, deliver warnings ahead of tsunami strikes. We are currently under a tsunami advisory with the first waves expected to hit certain towns on our coastline this hour. Yet despite decades of study, one of the world's most deadly natural forces remains as unpredictable as ever. The earthquake. It is officially impossible to predict earthquakes. Lots of people have said they can predict earthquakes, but nobody's actually ever done it in practice. David Hambling writes about science for The Economist. The problem with earthquakes is that they take place without any warning. While lots of people have been looking for the signals that might indicate an earthquake is on the way, some slight tremor or even electrical activity, nobody's been able to do that so far. And why is that? Well, although we know when earthquakes occurred, it's only very recently that geophysicists have started putting instruments in and actually getting a very close idea of what's happening. So we know that earthquakes appear on cycles. So if you've got something like the San Andreas Fault, the stick-slip cycle for that is about 40 years. And there's only been good instrumented data available for about the last 20 years of that. So we've only got about half a cycle of data available. But that may all change thanks to the technology of machine learning. How does that work? How does machine learning figure in here? I spoke to a geophysicist called Dr. Paul Johnson at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's developing a tool which might one day make forecasting earthquakes possible. That's because over very long periods of time, there is a pattern to earthquakes. Machine learning does everything from facial recognition to turning text into speech to saying which videos have cats in them. But the problem is with the current technique is that it uses a huge amount of data. You need to feed lots of examples into it. And that's very difficult for earthquakes because there is very little earthquake data available. Dr. Johnson says it's going to take about 10 full cycles of data. So we'd have to wait another 300 years or so if we were going to do it that way. So his team were looking at alternate approaches to this. Okay, what's the alternative then if they can't use real-world data? Initially, they took a step back away from big earthquakes and looked at these things called slow-slip events. That's a type of quake where the slipping is much more gradual, and rather than this huge earth-shaking event that happens over the course of just a few seconds, they can take weeks or months to go. So they're much slower and more gradual, but they are much more frequent, better than normal earthquakes for generating data. So there's piles of data from those kinds of events from from all over? So he was looking at the Cascadia subduction zone, which is down the Pacific coast of North America. And there you get events happening every 14 months or so. They have uh, at least 20 cycles worth of data from plenty of instruments. And that was enough to prove the principle by feeding it into their machine learning process to see whether or not they could predict slow slip events based on the seismic data. Uh, And the impressive thing was that they could. This is something that no one has been able to achieve before. Based on the data they've had, they reckon they can predict slow-slip events to within about a week or so. They can't get the exact location or the exact magnitude, but for the first time they can actually predict an event before it happens. And what does it mean being able to predict, even in that sort of primitive way, these slower events, when what we're really talking about is the, the big ones that we'd rather know about? Well, the great thing about that was that it proved the principle works. So it would work with big quakes if only we had enough data. So that then led them on to the next stage. How can we get enough data to predict big earthquakes when we haven't got any? 
And they approach this by means of a thing called transfer learning, which is where you train a machine learning system on one set of data, and then you shift it over to work with a different set of data. To establish whether this works, they created their own little earthquakes in their laboratory. These are things called lab quakes. They're miniature earthquakes, which you generate by squeezing glass beads very slowly in a sort of hydraulic press between two plates. And like an earthquake, it sticks and it sticks and it sticks until it suddenly slips. And that's where you get your lab quake. Now, they found that by listening to the sound of that happening, they could be reasonably successful in predicting when a slip was going to occur. What was interesting was when they used a combination of real-world and model data, and that was very much more successful. So that shows you can successfully transfer from learning on one type of quake, in this case a digital simulation, to the real-world one. And that's exactly what they want to do now going forward with real-world earthquakes. So how will that work? How to turn these lab results, these these numerical, these computational results into the kind of predictive power that geologists have been looking for for some time? So this is what Johnson's team are working on at the moment. The first thing they're going to do is to build this digital simulation of a fault. It may very well be the San Andreas fault. It might be another one. And then they're going to mix in the real world data. By training their system on it, they will then see whether it could have predicted any of the events that have happened in the past. One particular target he mentioned was the Parkfield quake, which was quite a large event. So they're going to see whether, given this type of training, their system could have predicted that. And if they can do that, then they know they will have hit gold. And if they do, do you have a sense for when they will, as you say, hit gold? We don't know exactly how long it's going to take them to do this. It could be within the next three to six months. If they can announce a result on that time frame, that's going to be amazing, because that will then mean that potentially it may be possible to predict earthquakes ahead of time. That's not actually his main goal. His main goal is simply understanding how earthquake physics works. But if they can actually get prediction out of it, that would be a major bonus. That is the most scientist-y science thing I've heard in a very long time. Oh, he doesn't really want to, you know, predict earthquakes and save lives. He just really wants to know how it works. <laughs> no, that's, that is exactly... he's. He's, he's very insistent that is, uh, he's not in the business of prediction. That, that's not their main goal. Their main goal is understanding the fundamental science. But the ramifications of being able to predict earthquakes and say, in 10 years and three months, San Francisco is going to experience another big one, that would be utterly mind-boggling. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. In the public bathhouses known as hammams, things certainly get wet and they can get wild. For centuries, hammams have been a crucial feature of cities across the Arab world, providing a place for people to socialize and to get squeaky clean. As with so many public spaces, though, COVID-19 has posed a real challenge. The pandemic hasn't been the only thing putting the hammam tradition in peril. Going to a hammam is a very different experience to what you would expect if you were going to a spa in the West, where the emphasis is more on de-stressing and relaxing, whereas in a traditional Middle Eastern hammam, the emphasis really is on getting clean. Catherine Pangonis writes about culture for The Economist. The cleansing process can feel very harsh. The body is sometimes aggressively exfoliated. Hair and body are washed together. 
and very little attention is paid to Western notions of modesty or privacy. Hammams are strictly segregated by gender, but everything takes place in a central chamber in front of all the other customers, which is obviously very different to what you would expect from a Western spa. And what's the history here? How did they come to be so central to cities in the Arab world? They were intended as places to cleanse and purify the body before going to prayer and turning the attention to the soul. And also, in historic times, they were the only opportunities people had to actually wash, whether it was once a week or once a month. And so the emphasis of the ritual really was on removing dirt from skin rather than relaxing the mind. Hammams fulfilled a practical function as a washing facility, which of course has declined in importance since the advent of hot running water in people's homes, which has been widespread for at least 70 years. On top of that, they used to fulfill an important social function, especially for women who had less social freedom. You say they they used to fulfill that function as if they don't anymore. Nowadays, women across the Middle East enjoy largely more social freedoms And with the advent of social media and telephones and things like this, it's no longer as important as a meeting place. So this social function has decreased as well. Cairo, according to legend, once boasted a hammam for every day of the calendar year. 150 years ago, the Medina of Tunis had at least 50 hammams. Now it has fewer than 25. And in Damascus, two thirds have closed since the 1940s. In Lebanon, only a handful operate in the whole country. So really, the culture has declined and many hammams have fallen into a state of disrepair. And of course, the pandemic made matters even worse. It's not the the best place to gather. Yes, indeed. Like gyms, like health clubs, hammams were largely closed during nationwide lockdowns imposed during 2020. And when they did open in gaps in the national lockdowns, they had to introduce measures. So whether it was health passes, vaccine certificates, masks, social distancing, which obviously deterred clients and detracted from the atmosphere and the normal experience. But in some places, the hammams didn't close at all. When I visited Tripoli in North Lebanon, I was told that patrons, in fact, truly believed that the steam would kill the virus. So that one didn't suffer so much. However, in countries where the lockdowns were observed, hammams did take a huge hit financially, and it has been a struggle for some of them to reopen. But day by day, they are beginning to reopen and clients are beginning to come back. But that might be returning clientele to a level that uh, from before the pandemic, but that's maybe not enough to, to, to save the culture as a whole. Provided things continue to reopen, hammam culture will recover from COVID-19. However, the culture is still seeing a steady decline. That said, it's unlikely to vanish completely. Hammams have a huge cultural significance at various important ritualistic stages of life, including in preparation for the wedding. Historically, Brides visiting the hammam before their wedding might feel quite nervous because they'd be under a level of scrutiny. But today, the hammam has been reclaimed by the bride as a place to celebrate before the wedding. And one of the most lucrative parts of a hammam's business model is hosting bridal parties. When I was in southern Turkey recently, a city called Antakya, I was caught up in a bridal party in a hammam. was a group of about 30 women ranging in age from, you know, less than one year old to women in their 60s and 70s who were all enjoying the ritual of the wash together and in addition sharing food, beating drums, making music, singing traditional songs and in general celebrating the upcoming wedding of one of the members of their families. And these parties really do bring in a lot of revenue for hammams and it's something that has remained popular through the generations. So in that respect, I think there will be a place for hammams in modern cities for for some years to come. 
Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.